0: The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. That's verses 17 to 18 and we're going to look at each quality in turn in a moment. But I'm just remembering a story in which a pastor once invited everyone in his congregation who wanted the power of the Lord to come and stand on his right and everyone who wanted purity to come and stand on his left. Guess which they chose. Nine-tenths chose power, but the pastor said, I've tricked you. You can't have the power without the purity. (laughs) The word pure in Greek is hagnos. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To see God means to know and understand his heart. And this purity is more than having a naturally nice predisposition. It's the result of careful cultivation of the heart. I find it interesting that there are so many parallels in the epistle of James with the Sermon on the Mount. It's made me wonder whether James was actually present at it himself. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers weren't at all sympathetic to his ministry at the time. But just look at the difference after the Lord appeared to James after the resurrection. He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his whole manner towards Jesus is one of profound respect. Lord, I want to ask you that you will bring me to a greater place of inner purity and deeper authenticity. I ask for your help in setting me free from the distractions and wrong kind of desires which chain me to the world's way of thinking. Grant me the inner discipline to come more readily to a place of inner stillness, whereby I can receive your leading more clearly and be more pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, thank you. Secondly, true wisdom is peaceable or peace-loving, irenikos in Greek. It speaks of a right relationship between man and man and between man and God. True wisdom, as Barclay puts, it brings men closer to one another and closer to God. Now this is the exact opposite of what we were speaking of just now, when we were warning against not speaking evil against one another. It's also a warning that we can sometimes unintentionally straightjacket and limit people through the expectations that we put on them. It's not easy to discern the specific leading of the Lord in someone else's life because there are vital clues and steps on the way that we simply weren't privy to. The principle to guide us at these times is that if the Lord is genuinely leading us, we can't afford to be looking over our shoulder to see who's following us. Not being reckless, not being foolish. Waiting for the Lord to confirm his message and his leading in different ways, and he will always confirm a true leading by various and different strands. But then when we are sure, not looking over our shoulder to see if everyone's agreeing with us, because not everybody will. We still need to go forward. Lord, I pray that my heart and my home may be Irenikos, a peaceful habitation, where you can be seen and loved and treasured. Take the roots of striving and contention from me, all those things that would cause pride or fear, And fill me instead with the spirit of peace. In Jesus' name, scatter the darkness and fill me with your power. Amen.
1: Peace is tough. Demands a proactive response. Demands a stance of strength and power. To hold it through those fading hours. Peace is love, demands a forgiveness of all, demands a lance all shine and sharp to pierce the red and rusty heart. Peace is rough, demands a communication, demands a dance of compromise to carry it over roaring tides. Peace is enough. Demands a fine-tuned precision, demands a balance of black and white to enable the grey in the black of the night.
0: Thirdly, true wisdom is epikēs. Now, oh, there's a word that's frankly almost impossible to translate. Most versions prefer considerate. Some use forbearing or courteous. But what Epiques is really speaking of is a willingness to go beyond what's expected of us. To make allowances and to forgive at times when circumstances might perfectly well justify condemnation. To realise that there are more important things in life than rules and regulations. In Barclay's words, it's about the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration which we would wish to receive ourselves. Lord, teach us more of that considerateness that goes beyond the minimum requirement and which can make all the difference to a person's morale and even to their willingness to continue following you at all. Grant us words in season, actions that are appropriate. Teach us that real forbearing and considerateness that is pleasing to you and that will help others in their pilgrimage. Lord, again, may the peace that you are working in our hearts give us that outer considerateness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Wisdom Fourthly, is submissive. That means willing to be persuaded rather than dogmatic and inflexible. Other translations put open to reason, ready to be convinced, conciliatory, willing to yield. Now, James had already warned in chapter 1, verse 19 onwards, that the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. Anger rarely accomplishes God's purpose unless it be that very rare, but necessary thing, righteous anger. The usual teaching of scripture is that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 1. When we're calm and reasonable, we're much more likely to be able to hear what someone else is saying. When we become angry, we're in danger of making an already tense situation a great deal worse. It's also very easy to nurture our hurts and to allow anger to settle in our hearts until it becomes a deep-seated bitterness. It's important that we face these issues as they come up. If, for example, you're having to make some sort of a break with the past at the moment, then rather than doing so in anger, try to close the door on it as gently as possible. You may just find that you need to walk back through that door again one day. Many people shrink back from surrendering themselves completely to the Lord because they are afraid of the uncertainties that would be involved in trusting him unreservedly. As a result, they are leading unsurrendered and hence fundamentally unfulfilled lives. The fact is that we often don't know what's best for us. The very thing that we so fear and wish to run away from may have been specifically chosen to help us grow. That's why James urges us not to try to escape our trials prematurely. Sometimes we don't receive much from the Lord because we're too preoccupied with our own plans and concerns to hear what God's saying to us. Charles Ringmer says this, We may want to receive, but we don't want anything to be taken away from us. We must adjust lest we lose our way by clinging to a past which is no longer in our possession. Adjusting is a little like dying. It's saying goodbye to that which is no longer true for us. It has to do with coming to terms with our past whilst being able to face the future, however uncertain that may be. It involves finding the courage to walk the unknown path. That's in a book called Dare to Journey, and um, published by Albatross Books. Just think what would have happened when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac if Abraham had replied, but Lord, you promised me a son, you've given him to me, there's no way I'm going to sacrifice what you've given me. It would have been completely wrong thinking, given that Abraham was so confident that he'd heard God asking him to do something so seemingly inexplicable. Abraham's willingness to offer up Isaac is a beautiful example of how faith and worship go hand in hand. Charles Ringmer again says this. We find service and worship easier than obedience, because obedience is responding to what's asked of us. It involves hearing the voice of the other against ourselves. It involves the call to do what we're not doing. It asks us to be open to change, to adopt new priorities, and sometimes to radically reorientate our whole life's direction. The art of relinquishment does not come easily for us even when we are long convinced that the time has come to let go or to move on. We frequently languish in the familiar places even when we've heard the distant voice. Obedience is never simply a matter of saying yes, that's not its most difficult element. Obedience is also saying no to the familiar. While saying yes to an unknown but possibly exciting unknown has the lure of adventure, Saying no to what is presently ours, even when we no longer fully appreciate what we have, is the most difficult feature of the art of obedience. When we go downstairs in the morning, we don't try to chase the darkness away by our own efforts. We open the curtains and let the light in. In the same way, we can never lose out by surrendering to the Lord, though pride or fear will tell us otherwise. Obedience is so much more than mere conformity, which may outwardly accept what's asked of us, but inwardly resent it. I'm sure we're not the only people who find that the Lord keeps challenging us to do things which we just can't achieve by our own efforts, or which seem too difficult or too dangerous. The Lord does this to keep us from settling on what we've already achieved, or allowing any self-reliance to develop. I pray the Lord will give us grace to keep reaching out for the highest and not settle for second best. Sometimes God allows us to face a similar situation to a difficult one in which we've seen him work in the past. And he does this to remind us that it really had been him who did it the first time round, just as it will be the second time. And it wasn't the fruit of our abilities or the happy product of some coincidence that it all worked out all right. Mind you, some coincidences, as the poster delightfully puts it, are miracles in which God chooses to remain anonymous. I love that. Here's a good way to start the day. Lord, I make myself available to you this day. Steer me, lead me, use me any way you want to. Help me to follow you willingly and to trust you implicitly so that all my confidence is in you rather than in myself. For Jesus' sake. Fifthly, wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Now, the ancient Greeks were quite prepared to pity people who were suffering unjustly. But the Christian concept of mercy, Elios, is nothing less than a reflection of the pity God feels for people, even when they are suffering, as so often is the case, entirely through their own stupidity or recklessness. This stands in sharp contrast to our instinctive tendency to back away from people who are experiencing such afflictions and to judge and scorn them, which of course merely makes them feel still further isolated. Job declared, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, that's Job 6.14. Christian mercy always translates itself into action. I wonder, are there any afflicted people the Lord would have you reach out to at the moment? When we make ourselves available to go out and rescue the prey that Satan has taken captive, as Paul and Gretel Haglin powerfully put it, then we're fulfilling James' final instruction to turn sinners from the error of their ways and thereby to cover over a multitude of sins. May mercy and good fruits characterise the hearts of God's people everywhere. May we show it in every part of our life. Sixthly, true wisdom is adiakritos, that is, undivided, unwavering. Wisdom keeps us from turning aside from following the proper path, even if it proves costly to implement. It's not clever to maintain an open mind when God has already spoken clearly about something. If we hesitate after God has revealed something clearly to us, we give ground to the devil who loves to see us falling for the lie that he's sown in our hearts. He is much less successful when we're clear in our beliefs and stand on them resolutely. Often and again we'll have to practice James four seven, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Lord, we ask that you'll make us less hesitant and more adiakytos unwavering. Give us undivided hearts that refuse to swerve from what you've said. And as we commit the details of our life to you, may we see great victories of faith. We stand on the watchtower looking to you, Lord, not to the situation. And we ask you to send your deliverance. In Jesus' name. Amen. Seventhly, true wisdom is anupocytos, that means without hypocrisy. There's no place for pose or play acting in the body of Christ in order to appear important, or to manipulate events or people to get our own way. To be all things to all people in order to help them know Christ better, that's to be both courteous and wise, but to flatter and deceive is not. I love being with people who do not respond in one way in one setting, but who undergo a complete character change in another. In other words, our character must match our calling. Lord, make us unambiguous and straightforward, so that people can safely entrust us with the secrets of their hearts. Show us where we are being devious or duplicitous, and bring us back to balance. Without hypocrisy... May we be an ubiquitous, Lord, in Jesus' name. And so we pray, Lord, that the wisdom of heaven may rule our conduct in every part of our lives, that your body may grow and be true and authentic. For your glorious sake we pray. Amen. <laughs>
1: Sense the, the incense drifting in the breeze. I can see the air move through the trees. I can touch the shadows dancing in the light. I can stillness of the storm. I can take the silence with me from the pool. I can stir
0: The first 10 verses of chapter 4, they're an impassioned plea not to ally ourselves with the world's way of thinking, but to resist the devil and to submit ourselves to the Lord. I'll read you those verses. What about the feuds and struggles that exist among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires and lusts a battle within you? You want something but don't get it, you kill and covet, but you cannot obtain what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Can you not see the point of the saying in Scripture, the longing of the spirit he sent to dwell in us is a jealous longing? the Jerusalem translation of verse 5, and Barclay translates it, God jealously yearns for the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. Back to the NIV for verse 6, but God gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That verse, you have not because you ask not, and you have not because you ask amiss, or as the NIV puts it, because you ask with wrong motives, that was a verse the Lord reminded me of very strongly the other day. It's worth thinking about. I suppose we've become used to thinking of conflict in terms of Kosovars versus the Serbs but James is highlighting those selfish desires and longings which produce tensions within the body of Christ which ultimately can make us enemies of God and nullify our prayer effectiveness. James uses frighteningly strong imagery to make us realise how serious our selfish longings really are. He speaks of wars and fighting and killing. Now, in worldly terms, the fact that the world hasn't been destroyed by a thermonuclear war shouldn't make us glib about the heartbreaking tragedies of all the lesser wars, if we can put it like that, that are being fought around the world. And as far as James is concerned, bad feeling among Christians is nearly as serious. Alex Moccia suggests these armed conflicts in the Church ought to cause us the same sort of shock and horror that war itself does. Look inside ourselves. The more prayerless we are, the more we'll find our heart being drawn aside to something or someone else. Now when we start getting interested in something or someone else, we may indeed become prayerful, but we ask amiss because what we want is just for our own gratification. As we sow, we shall also reap. And James is examining our inner conflicts here. When someone or something stands in the way of whatever it is we've set our hearts on, we come storming out of our corner, determined to get our own way, and even to get even with those who dare to oppose us. James has spoken strong words against lust, against covetousness, envy, presumption, or manner of evil speaking. And even if we feel relatively unscathed at this point... As though our particular problems haven't been highlighted yet, none of us can escape the charge of trying to please ourselves. We're inclined to excuse all manner of wrong passions simply because they feel good to the flesh. And that's why James cries out in the literal Greek, Adulteresses! Friendship with the world is enmity with God, it's strong language. But that's because lovers are expected to be faithful. James is highlighting many spiritual and personality disorders that the power demons nurture and then exploit. What are the power demons? Fear, pride, ambition, jealousy, revenge, rejection. They're always looking for opportunities to divide believers' interests and to sideline them, marginalise them by making them pursue secondary or illusory targets. To say the least... We need to be constantly watchful against those tendencies. Fear, pride, ambition, jealousy, revenge, rejection. They're all deadly, but pride is always our greatest foe simply because it's at the heart of our enemy's heart. Now God has many ways of warning us when pride sets in. He'll do it privately at first, but it will become more public later on if we fail to heed his warnings. As we considered earlier, it's particularly hard to be a teacher or a worship leader without pride getting in. (laughs) Richard Williamson amused me once by saying, A worship leader must worship himself. Well, it's obvious that he meant that a worship leader must be taking an active part in the worship rather than just doing it and directing it. But some worship leaders do seem to end up perilously close to worshipping themselves. (laughs) I was rather amused too by what Disraeli said of John Bright. He's a self-made man who worships his creator. Actually, Richard Williamson has the gift of near invisibility as a worship leader. He just makes room for the lords to get on with what he's doing. Wonderful. What James is at pain, pains to highlight is the overwhelming desire to possess. A desire that in no way diminishes through being constantly foiled in its objective. You crave and yet you cannot obtain. Why do people fight and wage war? Because they want to see what's in it for them. That's why we need to watch what's going on in our heart. As we said before, strong desires can easily be fanned into flames in our hearts until what began as a mere imagining in the heart becomes a dreadful reality some way further down the line. Just as we have a clearly perceived outer life, so we have a less well-defined inner life that consists of our thoughts and our desires and the two do not always track together as closely as they should. We might like to pretend that our inner life bears no relationship to what we do and how we are in public, but the fact is we're never more truly ourselves than when we're on our own before God. And that colours how we appear in public. If we allow inordinate desires free reign in our inmost being, they will at best leave us feeling profoundly unfulfilled or in need of ever larger doses to fulfill the craving that they've produced in our hearts. As Barclay put it, it's idle hands for which Satan finds mischief to do, and it is an unexercised mind which plays with desire, and an uncommitted heart which is vulnerable to the appeal of lust. No man was ever born without desire for some wrong thing. Desire goes far beyond mere sexual desire, There are all kinds of desire, but some wrong thing fascinates every man. Okay, since following these desires can only harm us and hurt others, we must let these thoughts, bad as they are, drive us to God, who has both the power and the compassion to set us free from them. The more we are living in the Word of God, the more likely it is that the Lord will be able to warn us ahead of time what the consequences of some action will be. The fear of the Lord keeps us alert to sins and temptations which are trying to master us. What the Lord said to Cain in Genesis 4:7 is a vital truth for all generations. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You see, whenever we give way to sin, we still have to live with ourselves in the aftermath. Our conscience doesn't go away. Most sins will never happen if we learn to think corporately rather than hiving off to do our own thing in a corner. The more we accept ourselves as God has made us, the less likely we are to wish that we were someone else or somewhere else and to retreat into a world of fantasy and daydreaming. This dream life can become so strong that it becomes very difficult to differentiate between dream and reality and we end up speaking out the things that we've stored in our hearts, foolish things. Be honest about the things which grip your mind and which fire your heart and imagination. To what extent are they spiritually helpful? To what extent are they ordained of God? James says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Henry Nguyen reminds us in The Road to Daybreak, what remains hidden, kept in the dark, can easily become a destructive force, always ready to explode in unexpected moments. What is kept in the dark ultimately becomes the dark side of ourselves. What is indulgently nurtured in our inner thoughts finally becomes a part of our being. While with great effort we may be able to bring these unwholesome thoughts under control, we frequently need to walk the road of humility by opening this part of our life to another person. We we then need the help of a minister or trusted friend who cares for us in ways that go deeper than our public persona. This person must be able to hear the story of our turmoil and extend to us grace forgiveness. If we're willing to be that honest, the power of God will be released to flow freely through our heart and our life, and it's great to be free. But it's not easy to get to the phone to ask for help, whether it's to set you free from your own sin or from some specific attack. Only the other day I was feeling under great pressure, and I thought, I can't possibly share this, nobody would understand it. But I was sufficiently desperate to go ahead and ring a number of friends. They were all great, they were really on the ball, they understood the complicated dynamics involved perfectly. Even more amazingly, the Lord had alerted two of them already, that I was in particular need of prayer that day. It was a great help and comfort. Wonderful. We come then to an injunction for the sick, which concerns the elders of the church. Is any one of you sick? Asks James. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. That's James 4, 14-15. Do you know, it was only in the 19th century that the Catholic Church turned the concept of anointing with oil into the last ripes, which of course was a preparation for death rather than anointing for healing. Much better to get involved at an earlier stage and to expect the Lord to use your prayers to see people healed. So easy to think the Lord will use other people's prayers rather than yours. It's always a great privilege to follow the Spirit's leading and to seize the opportunity and make a framework and pray together. It takes courage to do that. But it's so important to reach the stage when you say, let's pray together. Time after time, that's when what had hitherto been just an ordinary time of fellowship becomes an encounter with God and he works in power. Prayer can bring down spiritual strongholds. But sometimes this won't happen unless we first identify the stronghold. We were praying for a dear friend the other day who was suffering from bad kidney pain. And prayer that she'd received so far hadn't helped at all. So we looked a bit further and we discovered that somebody had made some very wounding and completely false accusations against her. When we released her from those words and we took the necessary spiritual authority, she immediately began to feel much better. Colour came back into her face, energy into her body. And what we often do in these cases is to pray what we call a test prayer and we see what effect it has. We say something like, Lord, if this person's sickness is related to that thing which so and so has done, then please release this person from it. We've seen a number of examples of this over the past few months and people have been set free from specific bondages that have been placed on their life by words that have been spoken against them, sometimes deliberately, and sometimes involuntarily. That's why we considered the power of the tongue earlier on. You may have read Derek Prince's book, uh, Blessing or Curse, You Can Choose. It's a powerful book. When I first read it, I thought perhaps it was a little bit far-fetched and over-the-top, um, but certainly perhaps that he was making a sort of a doctrine out of an experience, but it's certainly been a valuable tool in helping me to understand some of the dynamics involved when we've been praying for difficult cases that haven't responded to straightforward prayer, and we have seen breakthroughs as spiritual strongholds have been identified. It goes without saying that different needs require different amounts of prayer in order to obtain release. Clearly we need an eldership that's trained and ready as an effective prayer squad But as elders we are often very aware of our faults and weaknesses and this can sometimes allow our own sense of inadequacy to paralyze us and hold us back. The good news is that the Lord can use us in spite of our own weaknesses. I remember a time when the Lord brought a number of people across our path. All of them were seriously sick and had had long-standing problems and I had no faith whatsoever that they would be healed so I just prayed duty prayers for them, if I can put it like that. And in each case, they made remarkable recoveries. It's not how we are feeling that determines the outcome, but the power of God being invited into the situation. That's why it's so important to make the framework of prayer and say, Can we pray together about that? I say again that it's a dangerous thing to allow the memory of some failure in the past to hold us back from setting out. Hesitation plays right into the hand of the enemy and it effectively denies the grace of the Lord. You remember, we prayed to be more adiakritos, that is, more resolute and less wavering. Why allow the devil to rob us of our usefulness? You never know what you may become in the Lord and what you can do for him until you try. The key to overcoming is to believe what the Lord has said to us. And to identify whatever tape or video, if I can put it like that, that the devil may be playing deep inside our mind so that we can reject its monotonous lies and its fears and its suggestions. This is the heart of so many of the battles that we have to wrestle with. Overcome their message and do what James says. Draw near to God and he will draw close to us. The order is significant. We must go to him, rather than expecting him to come to us in the first instance. (laughs) Just as a simple example, the inspiration for much of this talk came because I gave up a little bit of time on a Saturday afternoon to wait on the Lord. It was only a small sacrifice, but the Lord honoured it. There's always a temptation in our media-hyped world to expect great things of ourselves, of others, of life itself. Now this longing for the bigger and the better can rob us of our ability to enjoy the present and the gifts which God has given us. It's not that we should shrink our expectations, but simply that we should recognize that not everything we do will lead to the results that we dream of. It's better to act and to love than to daydream of great results. Self-deceit is just as serious as any other form of deception. What arrogance it is to assume that we can achieve our goals by our own abilities and planning. Listen, says James, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will we will live and do this or do that. James, as you can see, does not treat presumption lightly. He considers it to be a serious sin. He sees it as the hard core of vaunting pride, which is the mark and curse of fallen man. But the trouble is, most of us don't instinctively welcome the intense dependency, which is the antidote to presumption. Perhaps we find it humiliating, or just too much of a fuss, to consult the Lord about the humdrum details of our everyday lives. But the Lord's interested in sharing our plans. Not just the major things like career changes, but the smaller details too, like where to go on holiday, how to spend our leisure time, who to visit today, who to give a ring to. It's so much more exciting and rewarding to stay in touch with God concerning every detail of our life. Worth checking, too, whether we're actively taking our faith into our workplace and business life. This is an area where there seem to exist particular opportunities at the moment to develop Christian thought. In many ways, the world's ethos is coming closer to the Christian ideal, but without Christ. You can see this especially in that many businesses are now eager to implement servant and participatory models of leadership, rather than the hierarchical dictatorial line that's been the standard for so long. I was privileged recently to be part of a group of leading Christian businessmen and women in the southwest of this country who were discussing how to bring a distinctively Christian approach to business. Uh, It was fascinating, and there's so much to explore on this theme. There are times, though, when sensitive people will simply feel overwhelmed by the state of the world and its need for God. Blessed are they that mourn, Jesus said, and James tells us specifically that there is a time to grieve, mourn and wail. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, The whole organisation of life, the pleasure mania, the money, energy and enthusiasm that are expended in entertaining people are all just an expression of the great aim of the world to get away from the spirit of mourning that the Bible recommends. We may find ourselves mourning over any one of a thousand things that are wrong in nation, company, family or fellowship. And so long as our mourning takes wrong things to the cross, rather than lodging in our soul then we may be fulfilling Galatians 6.2 carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ the Greek word that's used here to carry is bastazo which means to carry off or in our vernacular to cart off if we give burdens to the Lord they're carted off they don't get stuck in our souls and weigh us down that's why mourning has nothing to do with being morose sorrowful, yes but not miserable or sullen. To be mournful is not at all to be lacking in faith or to gloomily suppose that all God's blessings lie behind us in the past or weren't destined to come our way in any case. On the contrary, the fact that we're identifying with God's heart means that we can confidently expect him to break through into a situation. We can look at a situation as Jesus does and feel his deep compassion. There's that time in John's Gospel when we find that Jesus was deeply troubled in spirit. The Greek word used there is terasso, which means to be deeply agitated, rather like the agitator in the old twin tub washing machines. It's a very deep and strong, powerful word. And there are times when we'll be touched in the depths of our being as we cry out to God about these things. Well, we've looked at heavy things in the course of overviewing the book of James. We've seen that trials and temptations will undoubtedly come our way, but that they too can be part of the Lord's maturing of us. He watches our response carefully to see how we will respond to them, and whether we'll continue to serve him during the times when he seems a long way away. We've seen the importance not only of guarding our tongue from speaking evil, but also of stilling it as we seek to draw close to God. And I pray that he'll help us to win the battle of the bedclothes in the morning to get up to be with him, to be prepared to switch the television off. And perhaps, why not make the effort to take a few days away? It's good for the soul to be in a stream of prayer rather than just snatching a few hours or minutes here and there. The Lord honours this concept of pilgrimage, of going away just in order to be with him. We've found that although we have to work hard to get ourselves the time off, Those times pay for themselves many times over once we do it. Remember too that God's angels are always at hand to give us the benefit of their powerful ministry. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that they work hard on behalf of those who will inherit salvation. In other words, they're already exerting themselves before a person comes to Christ. You may be able to think of examples in your own life when you can trace the hand of the Lord at work in your heart before you were in any position to fully acknowledge Him. I can see it very clearly when I look back and see the reasons why I chose to do the subjects that I did at school, which led directly to me being at the university that I went to in time to meet the Lord as I did. So when the pressure's on, try to remember that the angels of God are always at hand. They help us to draw close to God in worship, and just when we reach the absolute limit of our ability to endure some trial, They come in answer to prayer and break through to keep us from despair and they give us the victory that we so need and long for. I pray that each one of us will continue to draw near to God, to resist the devil and to be used by the Lord to deliver countless people from their trials and tribulations. May we be willing to do whatever the Lord asks us to do, however much some people may dislike or disagree with us for doing it. May we be prepared to pray and mourn when others are preoccupied with their own pleasures. May we hunger for righteousness when it would be much more convenient just to think about advancing our own self-interests. Then we'll hear the Father of Lights thanking us for our hidden faithfulness and rewarding us openly in His eternal kingdom. All the pain associated with our trials will be washed away and we'll be together with our loved ones forever. It will be worth the climb and worth the sacrifice for the joy that set before us.